Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to First Baptist Rocky Tom. Thank you for being here, and thank you for listening. Some of you may remember a very famous song that was first released back in 1965. It was released by the American folk rock group known as The Birds, B-Y-R-D-S. And they released this song, and it was titled Turn, 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 or sometimes more affectionately called For Everything There Is a Season. And it's interesting, and some of you may know this, that this song is actually taken straight from the biblical book of Ecclesiastes, and it was written by King Solomon. Ecclesiastes was written by King Solomon, who little did he know would author this song way back in the 10th century B.C. for a song that would take place in the mid-20th century. And it goes like this, To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plan, a time to reap. A time to reap that which is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together. Now it goes on from there, but the point that King Solomon was making, and much later on, the birds is that there are seasons that we all experience in life, God-ordained seasons. And the Apostle Paul, the primary person that we've been focused on over the past few weeks, was going through some various seasons in life himself. Some were yielding great results, and some were tough and fraught with hardships. And once again, we're in parts of the book of Acts that move very quickly from one thing to the next. And there are certain events and details that can be very quick or very easy to pass over quickly as we read through this. Luke, again, the author of the book of Acts, is covering many, many years in just a few short paragraphs. And we first learn about the establishment of the Ephesian church in Acts 18. That's where we're going to be today, looking at the church of Ephesus. And in Acts 18, we read this, And they, Paul and his traveling companions, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Just a real short clip here that introduces the church at Ephesus. Now, interestingly, back in Acts 16, Paul had desired to go to Ephesus and be a missionary there and establish a church there and share the gospel there. Ephesus was considered to be in Asia Minor, and we read in Acts 16 that for some reason Paul was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go to Asia at that time. Now, you've probably heard people say that God either says to our prayers and to our desires, God either says yes, he says no, or he says wait, or not now, to all of our prayers and all of our questions and to all of the longings of our heart. And I have to say to you, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that it probably oversimplifies things way too much and that there's much more uh, detail and complexity in God developing us and molding us into the men and women that he wants to be. But I will say this, that one of the hardest lessons for me to learn personally is that sometimes our best intentions are not God's purposes and will. Our best intentions are not God's will and God's purpose, no matter how good and ambitious that they sound, and that sometimes God will indeed have us wait before he springs us into action. We're on God's time frame. We're at his disposal for his glory, 
And no doubt the Apostle Paul here with his desire and his heart to go to Ephesus has the, had the best of intentions early on, but God did not allow him to go on Paul's time frame. But interestingly, just a few years later, Paul is allowed to go back to Ephesus and establish the church. And so he returns to Ephesus on his third missionary journey, and he has an extensive ministry with the church that was established there, which again is our focus for today, the church at Ephesus. This is on down in Acts chapter 19. We're going to pull just a few texts from Acts 19 and Acts 20 as we progress through this. And this will be Acts 19 again. We'll begin in verse 1 and read down through verse 7. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. So here Luke begins the chronicling of Paul's extended ministry in the city of Ephesus with the church at Ephesus, and he begins with kind of a peculiar story. So here in Acts 19, these first couple of verses, Paul engages with these disciples, and there's this distinguishment that arises between the baptism of John and the baptism of in the name of Jesus. So Paul says to them, into what then were you baptized? And they say, well, John's baptism. So who are they talking about? Well, they're talking about John the Baptist. If you're familiar with him, great. If you're not familiar with John the Baptist, I'm going to do a quick snippet of who he was. John the Baptist is one of my favorite people from the Bible. We're first introduced to him in the Gospels in the New Testament, and he becomes a very important figure in the lead-up to the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has a miraculous birth story. Both of his parents, who were named Zechariah and Elizabeth, were really, really old when they had John. They were way past the age of bearing children. And yet God chooses to bless them with a child in their advanced years. And Zechariah finds out about this when he is in the Jewish temple. And he is burning some incense, and he's offering up prayers to the Lord. And an angel kind of breaks this news to him. And Zechariah is so stunned that he questions the news in disbelief. And as a result of this, he is struck mute, meaning he can't speak, until the day that his baby boy is born. Now, I'm not going to lie. I've always kind of thought that this was a little bit harsh, that Zechariah lost his ability to speak for that many months. But God no doubt had good reasons for this consequence. It was perhaps to make Zechariah more introspective, to make him more obedient. Maybe it was to give his wife Elizabeth a break because he was a chatterbox. I don't know. But regardless of the reason, he couldn't speak until John was born. And then at this whole naming, it was a big thing to name babies. Oftentimes they were named after their father if it was a son. So predictably they were going to name him Zechariah or Zacharias, something like that. And he says, no, no, you know, he writes on a tablet and says his name is John. And then God restores his ability to speak. And we find this story at the beginning of Luke's gospel. And it's an exciting and fast-moving section of scriptures as God, who 
seemingly has been silent for centuries is now moving at this very brisk pace as Jesus is coming into the world. And so John was preparing that way for Jesus. That was John the Baptist's primary role. And John garnered a lot of attention early on in his ministry. In the opening section of the Gospel of John the Apostle, John the Apostle records this story about John the Baptist. It says, This was the testimony of John. Priests and Levites come to John and say, Who are you? John says, I'm not the Christ. They say, Are you Elijah? I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? No, I'm not the prophet. So then they said to him, Well, then who are you? And John replies, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. So John was preparing the way for Jesus. He was a very provocative man, wearing camel's hair for clothing and eating a strange diet of locusts and honey. Yet God was using him to pave the way for Jesus. He was baptizing, but it was the baptism of repentance pointing to Jesus. And so now joining this story in the gospel, or excuse me, the book of Acts, which of course does contain the gospel, but in the book of Acts, we have the, these Ephesian disciples who had only a basic understanding of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, and his ministry. In a way, this is a story that we kind of glazed over. They were in the same place as Apollos. You might recall that we introduced Apollos in Acts chapter 18, that Apollos had an incomplete understanding of the gospel message, and yet Aquila and Priscilla, husband and wife, they come to him and they explain the way of God more accurately. And Apollos, too, was a mighty figure that emerges near the end of the book of Acts. He was eloquent and he was a powerful preacher, but again, he had this incomplete knowledge that his friends of Paul, Aquila and Priscilla, helped him to correct. And in fact, Apollos becomes such a prominent leader that some scholars believe that he may be the author of the book of Hebrews. But John here, John the Baptist, baptized with a baptism of repentance. And so Paul points out that John's baptism was one of repentance, but not necessarily faith into salvation. John's message pointed to Jesus, but it didn't take man there itself. And so it's likely that these Ephesian disciples heard about the coming of the Christ, the Messiah, through John the Baptist's message, and they heard their need to be ready through repentance to receive the Messiah, yet they don't actually seem to have heard that the Messiah had come and completed the work of salvation, and they had not heard of their need to trust in this specific person and work. And so here, Paul ministers to them. He gives them the complete picture. And so these 12 Ephesian disciples believe on Jesus, and they're baptized, and they receive the Holy Spirit with the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, Having been completely prepared by their response to the preaching of John the Baptist, they were now ready to embrace Jesus fully and completely. And these men were about 12 in all. So John the Baptist, his purpose to prepare the way for Christ, this was happening long after his death. And may I say that we also see God's grace in these moments like this, that these people were not condemned for their incomplete belief, but God sent them someone to correct the gaps in their knowledge. These Ephesian disciples sensed their need to get right with God, and they knew the answer was in the Lord Jesus Christ. They just needed to go all the way to trust everything that, that Jesus had said and done and be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. God always wants us to go deeper. It's been said that we tend to sip where we could drink deeply, 
And God invites us to such deeper understanding of his truth that brings joy and treasures of knowledge. And so let's be encouraged by going deeper into the things of God through his word and the Holy Spirit. Then on down in Acts 19, verse 8, here's what happens next. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So, as, you've been, as we've been studying and going through the book of Acts, we know that it was Paul's custom to go to the Jewish synagogue first. And so he has this extended preaching of time to the Jews there in their place of worship. But eventually, the influence of the Jews who were rejecting the message of the Christ drives him out. And so then he resumes his teaching in the hall of a Gentile teacher named Tyrannus. Now, this is kind of interesting. There's this school of Tyrannus, and there are extra-biblical historical sources that confirm the existence of this school. And there's even an extra-biblical source that talks about Paul's pattern going into this particular school, that Paul would go into this borrowed school and that he would hold meetings sharing the gospel, teaching people the full things of God, from every day from 11 o'clock to 4 o'clock. So he would go there for this extended period of time preaching and teaching the Word of God. Now imagine going somewhere from 11 to 4 o'clock every single day hearing preaching and hearing the Word of God. And so in the ancient world, this was the time where most people rested from work, including Paul, who we know from earlier or from other places in the book of Acts, was also working to support himself by being a tent maker. Now, Paul does this every day. Now, considering how much time he spent in Ephesus, this would have meant hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of hours of teaching. And it's, so, it's no wonder that the work of the Apostle Paul in Ephesus was so broad and so marvelous and so effective. And this goes on for two years as he equipped believers in Ephesus and shared the gospel. You know, something I'll share with you that I've learned from our time in the book of Acts is this model for missions. You know, I see many pe- many churches and many people, myself included, who have went on mission trips, and we call these short-term mission trips. Now, I want to be really careful with what I'm saying here because I don't want to offend and I don't want you to hear more than what I'm saying. I'm fully supportive of missions and in many cases even short-term missions that have established uh, established mission work in place at, at these areas where we may go and visit and offer our support and the church working together. But just kind of going on these quick Bobs and Bits mission trip is not the model that we see in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul and his companions would go places and they would stay for months or years sharing the gospel and equipping people with the truth of Christ. Paul dwelt among them. He got to know them. He understood them and he learned how to effectively minister to them as a trusted source. Now, what was this equipping Well, reading the book of Acts, we continuously see Paul's message was this, that the Christ had to suffer and rise again 
from the dead. This was his message in the synagogues. Paul used the Old Testament scriptures to point people to Jesus. You know, I love the Old Testament, the first 39 books of the Bible. And in a way, Christians read the Bible backwards, kind of starting with the New Testament and then hearing some highlights from the Old on occasion. But I may say to you, if you read the Bible through as this grand narrative, you will see Christ on every page of the Hebrew Scriptures. And the beauty of God's redemptive plan shines through so beautifully. Paul also said to the Corinthians, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I determined to know nothing or anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So the sacrifice of Jesus for the atoning of sins, that was the central focus of Paul's message and the resurrection. It was the good news that God sent His Son Jesus to take the judgment for sin on Himself and rose from the dead by con- as a conquering king. And by accepting this gift, we are forgiven, we are redeemed, and we share in God's eternal blessings. And Paul also was giving us a model of discipleship here, the great commission that Jesus shares with us at the end of the Gospel of Matthew to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. The greatest thing we can do as a church is to disciple believers. I know we briefly mentioned this last week, but again, the church is not meant solely to be an evangelistic outreach center. Rather, it is meant to equip believers, Christians, the redeemed, to study and understand God's Word and go and repeat this process with others by making disciples. And so as our church, our model must continue to be where we begin this whole journey in the book of Acts. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Again, kind of our biblical vision statement here at First Baptist Rocky Top. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. But you know, all by himself, there was no way that Paul could reach this entire region, but he continued to equip and disciple Christians to do the work of the gospel ministry. Now, there are several other events that Luke records for us from Paul's stay in Ephesus, but to save time, I'm going to kind of mention them quickly as we draw this uh part of Acts to a close. So God, as you would go through this perhaps and read it on your own, God works some unusual miracles with Paul. There are some handkerchiefs that are being used that Paul had had that to just touch people so that they would be healed. Demons were being driven out of people and diseases would be cured. And it should be noted that even Luke, as he records this, refers to these as unusual, untypical, or extraordinary miracles and events that were taking place. In Acts 19, around verse 17, we learn of this purge of evil material. There's this group of new believers that trust in Christ. They were uh, looking into dark magic and sorcery, so they take all of their books, all of their scrolls, all of their material, and they and they burn them. It was this dramatic moment, of course, but it shows the length that we must go to to rid ourselves of the influence of evil. And while it's true that we are born again to a new life in Christ when we trust Christ, I think any of us would be willing to admit that we still struggle with the flesh and its wicked desires. Our fleshly, our carnal natures want nothing to do with God. And until we are made perfect, we will struggle with the sinful desires of the flesh. So we must put them away. 
And so these folks burned them. They destroyed them. So not only that they would be affected by them, but that no one else would be affected by it either. And then in Acts 20, we learn that Paul preached a message, a very long message, and a person who was sitting in a windowsill starts to doze off. And he continues to fight this sleep and fight this sleep, but finally he succumbs to it and he falls asleep under the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Now, selfishly, I must admit that this is somewhat reassuring and strangely comforting to know that a person fell asleep even under the preaching of the great Apostle Paul. Now, it's kind of a bad news, good news scenario here. So the bad news is when this guy falls asleep, he falls out of the window and he dies. The good news is God used Paul to heal the man and he rises from the dead. So it kind of has this happy ending. But that said, I cannot promise the same result if you fall asleep under my preaching, so it's best just to stay awake. And finally, we get to the final in-person message of Paul that he has with the church at Ephesus. This is in Acts chapter 20, way down in verse 25. Paul's talking to them and he says, Now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, talking about the church, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Go down to verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So there's a sense of mixed emotion in these words of Paul. On one hand, it was words of victory and encouragement. A church had been established in Ephesus, a city that was wrought with paganism, sorcery, and demonic strongholds. The whole counsel of God had been preached, and people, many people, had been saved. On the other hand, there was a real sense that Paul's life was nearing its end. Persecution was ramping up, Paul's return to Jerusalem was risky, and many, including Paul, thought he would not make it out alive. Paul also knew what God's Word teaches about the human heart. We are prone to wonder, prone to leave the God we love. And he warned the Ephesians that wolves would emerge, not from the outside, but from within. And we'll see, sadly, this actually does happen, as one day we'll have a look at Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. But here they embrace one another, they pray together, and they cry. They weep with one another, because they knew that at least in this life, they would not see Paul again. And then Paul boards the ship, and he leaves for Jerusalem. So what are some of those timeless takeaways that we can have from this section of Scripture? Well, one 
is we must equip ourselves with the whole truth of the gospel. I'll borrow from the Apostle Peter at this point. As he wrote in 1 Peter 3.15, he says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense or to give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have. You know, the longer I know Christ and the more I understand his word and the character of God, the more I am absolutely convinced that there is no question, no objection, no longing in our souls that God cannot answer and that Christ cannot satisfy. As his people, we must be equipped to share this truth with the world and be prepared to answer their questions. And don't be content with just a little knowledge, but feed on the whole truth of God. The author of Hebrews was saying to them in Hebrews 5 that they have a lot to say, but it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. He goes on to say, even though you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles. You need milk, not solid food. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You know, it isn't God who is unclear, yet perpetual confusion and a lack of understanding is on those who refuse to understand, for those who refuse to study and seek God. Secondly, revival leads to a purging of false teaching and sin. We love Christ. If we love Christ and still love the world, the worldly things, then we must purge those things from our life. And this is not easy. For many in Ephesus, they did this in a dramatic way, burning books and things of sorcery in a grand blazing fire. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, You will have enough temptation in your own mind without going after these things of the world. Is there any habit, any practice that you have got that defiles your soul? If Christ loves you and you come to trust him, you will make short work of it. Have done with it and have done with it forever. But Jesus says that even in a more punchy way, he said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. We must put away the things of evil and put our heart and our minds and our focus and our love on the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, Paul abandoned his life to the will of God. He tells them at the end there at the church of Ephesus that they will see his face no more. In all of this, Paul's great love and concern for the leaders and the church at Ephesus was a reflection of Jesus' great love and concern for them. Paul followed Jesus in every way he could, and since Jesus loved these believers so very much, so did Paul. It's interesting and fascinating to think about how much this final segment of Paul's life mirrored the life of Jesus. Like Jesus, Paul would travel to Jerusalem with a group of his disciples. Like Jesus, Paul was opposed by hostile Jews who were plotting against his life. Like Jesus, Paul made and received predictions of his coming sufferings in Jerusalem. Like Jesus, Paul was ready to lay down his own life. Like Jesus, he was determined to complete his ministry. Like Jesus, he expressed complete and total surrender and abandonment to the will of God as he served the God he loved. 
Now, should we expect any different? As Jesus said, is the servant greater than his master? So we too should expect to know the fellowship of his sufferings as we work to share Christ with the world. So as we close right now, I want you to make a place of prayer right right where you are and think about this season of life that you are in. And during this time, remember, look back and reflect on the blessings that God has given you. I know that there are many times of victory and happy times, but also remember the times of struggle and hardship, painful as they may have been, knowing that God has brought you through it. And now think about your present season of life. What is God asking you to do now? And please don't make the mistake of thinking, I am too old or I'm too young or I've already done my work and it's time for others to do something. Because where does God have you right now? And how is he asking you to love and serve him now? And then finally, think towards the future. Paul was not careless about what the future held, but he knew that no matter what man could do to him, he had a home in heaven with the Savior he loved and served. You and I have that too. And that is a beautiful, wonderful promise. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, God, please take this word that you have given us, God. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you will just move it within our hearts and help us to be absorbed into our minds and our hearts, God. And Lord, even in the weakness of myself presenting it, God, that you can take it and you can multiply it and help us to grow and mature for your glory and your kingdom. God, I pray for our community here. I pray for all those who are listening. God, that they would find the joy and the peace and the comfort, not that the world gives, but that only Christ can give, that only you can bring. In Jesus' name, amen.